Hey folks, for everyone that's out there, um, g'day, I'm Stefan Angelini. I'm the host of the Investor Types podcast, um, also run a lo- uh, financial planning practice, Angel Advisory. Sitting here talking to Daniel McDonald about starting a law firm and running a successful law firm. Uh, Daniel, thanks for joining me today, mate. Really good to have you here. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be um, here. Where are we? We're in Melbourne. Uh, we're in lockdown. Lockdown 2.0, still going strong. Uh, for any of you that is watching this video, um, I apologize in advance for my offensive haircut. My hair was getting out of control. I felt like I looked like one of the Beatles, so I got my wife to cut it. <laughs> Daniel, you know what I what um what I realized when she was cutting it? Um, I, I realized I'm a very uh, patient, optimistic person. I always thought she was going to do a good job. Um, she, she's a very pessimistic person. She she knew she was stuffing it up. I realized she was stuffing it up when she finished. Uh, but I also realized that I should probably just cut my hair off because I'm slowly going bald. <laughs> well, I, I actually think she's done a terrific job. Certainly looks great from the front. So, and really, in this particular day and age and the way we're doing business in Melbourne, looking good from the front is all that matters. That's all that matters. The back, the back is chopped up, but I won't show everyone. Oh, mate. So, look, starting a law firm, running a law firm, running a law practice, um, I could imagine it'd be an emo- it'd be an emotional thing to do. But could you tell me why did you first get involved in law? And um, tell me a bit about your history. Well, yes. How did I get involved in law? I was one of those people who um, did not have good enough uni scores to get into law when I was young, and so I got into IT strangely enough and started my career as a software developer. Um, and from there, I I started doing some consulting work and. Uh, uh, got involved um, with a very large IT&T company and started designing satellites, believe it or not. So um, and working in that space and eventually I got into management just due to the fact I didn't want to travel around the world anymore. Yeah. Um, I thought, what's the thing I can do now in, in IT where I can actually stay at home? And the only thing that presented itself was management. And as a result of that, I found I had quite a, a unique skill set for management um, I was quite personable. I was quite empathetic. Um, I had a good mind for business, and business management suited me quite well. So I did an MBA um, and moved my way through various membership—not uh, membership, but management business channels—until um, I kind of found myself working as uh, as a director at a very, very large global company. And then from there, I, I took various C-level roles uh, as a CFO, a COO, and a CEO. Um, and as a CEO, um, I got to the point where I felt from a management perspective, I probably had reached the pinnacle of my career. And there were obviously various more CEO roles that were probably going to present themselves um, before me. But uh, uh, I actually was felt feeling completely unsatisfied as a CEO mm-hmm. or not. Um, and although I was quite skilled at it, um, it just wasn't really doing it for me. And I got to a point where I just reflected back on my life and thought to myself, at which point in my career was I the happiest? What type of work was it that I was doing um, where I was actually getting a lot of job satisfaction from? Um, and, uh, I, you know, the answer that kind of presented itself to me um, was consulting. You know, it was a time when I was out there having face-to-face contact with people and solving their problems. That was where I was most fulfilled from an employment perspective. Um, And it was at that time that I thought to myself, I am now going to 
see if I can get myself back into some sort of consulting role. And then I was faced with the dilemma of I've been out of the IT space for so long, my skills are all kind of redundant in that area. Um, where could I offer consulting? Um, and so I started going through the various options that I had based on my own skill set. And obviously, you know, I've been leading companies for four or five or six years at, at, at the highest level. So the obvious choice was probably to perhaps be a management business consultant. To be honest with you, I couldn't think of anything worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I just I can't do that. I just could not be sitting there telling people how to run their business. And I was so I'm faced with this dilemma about well, what it is um, that I'm going to do with my life. And I'm in my 40s, right? I'm having this sort of career midlife crisis. Um, and I was actually uh, having dinner with a with a lawyer from Slater and Gordon's, and I shared with them the dilemma that I was I was dealing with personally. Um, and, you know, they were a lawyer. I happened to say to them, you know, it's just unfortunate the way my life has gone because I would have loved to have started my career like you as a lawyer. And, uh, and she turned to me and she said, uh, well, why didn't you get into law? And I said, well, I didn't have good enough grades, you know, just enough scores, you know. It just wasn't ever going to happen. And she goes, but you've got a master's degree in business, right? And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And she goes, well, that'll get you straight in. Why don't you just apply for law now? You'll get in. You've got that master's degree. It's just a walk in the door. And I, I'd never heard this before. And I you thought, so, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was completely taken aback. So I thought to myself, uh, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I was 42 or something. I thought, well, is that too late to start a career? I thought, well, no, I've got these good, unique business and commercial uh, skills. And if I decide to go down a path of being a commercial lawyer, they would probably add value to that. So the next day I went down to um, uh, RMIT and, and I enrolled to do the Juris Doctor uh, course. So um, I was uh, uh, working full-time at the time as a, as a COO and a CFO uh, for a, a global services business and I started studying full-time and uh, three years later um, I finished my degree and you know that was yeah you are crazy yeah it was crazy so you went from software design to management running companies and said nah you know what I'm taking a new direction I want to get back into consulting I want to deal with people I'm going I'm going back to school and I'm going to study while I'm working and Got a kids. That's got right. And I, I tell you, that's exactly <laughs> right. And I'll tell you the thing that, um, yeah, 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 that, you're absolutely right. But I'll tell you the thing that um, was extremely attractive to me for doing that. Um, the thing about uh, IT consulting, which was actually a dilemma that I was dealing with, is one of the reasons why I chose law is law is one of those careers, right, and there, there is very few industries like this where the older you get, the more people have confidence in you, which is the complete reverse in IT, right? <laughs> like, you know, if you've got a computer problem, you don't want a 65-year-old <laughs> IT guy showing up at your door to sort it out at all. Like nothing, nothing puts you in a fear of terror than having a 65-year-old IT guy. And my apologies to all the 65-year-old IT guys out there. I'm sure they're brilliant. But from a confidence perspective, um, uh, being that old in that particular sector, you, you really have got to 
absolutely bring your own game to the table for people to actually believe that you can resolve their issues. But in, in the legal fraternity, it's completely different. The older you get, the more confidence you have. Um, and so I thought to myself, you know, actually starting something at 40 is probably not a too bad a thing, particularly in the legal industry, because I could potentially work till I'm 95 years old and probably hit the pinnacle of my career at 95. So, you know, it wasn't <laughs> a, a, a silly decision. I, I love the work ethic. Uh, work until you're 95, already prepared for it. Dan, um, you got to turn your other speaker off because I think I can hear me twice over, which I don't want to do. No one wants to hear me too much. Obviously, working hard, starting start your own practice. I think we're, no, we're good now. Um, starting your own practice, getting involved, finding business. It's always a hard part. Right? As people go in to start their own business, they're like, all right, well, what direction am I going to take? Obviously, you didn't have the legal background, so you wouldn't have had the clients there or any clients to bring across, across from a different firm. How important to your business is was marketing in the business and actually bringing in I guess, um, conversations about, about, about work and what you do for work. How important has marketing been to your business over the, say, the last, what, two and a bit years that you've been running the practice? Well, um, I, I had some experience running law firms. So I was, um, prior to starting my own firm, I was the CEO of a law firm for a few years, which okay. put me in good stead for understanding how um, a law firm operates. I... I've, you know, I started my first company when I was in my 20s, you know, and I've had a series of other enterprises since then. I think as an entrepreneur, um, it's almost like a disease. Once you get the bug, you know, it's very hard to, 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 to walk away because, you know, the ideas come and you start thinking about how you can, you know, manifest these ideas and actually into some sort of commercial outcome. So, um now, running a, running a law firm put me in good stead to understand what was required to get the firm going. But you're absolutely right from a marketing perspective. You've, you know, I started the firm. I, I didn't bring any clients over with me. I obviously hadn't worked as a lawyer for, for, uh, for very long in, in, the, in the space. And I did have the dilemma of um, having to obviously get customers very quickly in order to keep my business um, cash flow positive and keeping myself in food and everything else and kids in braces and all that sort of stuff. That, that's the dilemma that anyone has. It, it's easy to start a business when you're sort of in your 20s and you have no commitments. You can live, mum and dad are in the car, who cares? But starting a business in your 40s, you know, your life has matured. It's had a very different place and usually your cost overhead structure is significantly higher than it was in the 20s. So that's the dilemma. Now, that was actually the dilemma that caused me to start my own law firm because I knew I couldn't survive on great wages, right? Mm. I mean, you know, 40, 50 grand a year, they employ great. I couldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I just couldn't, couldn't sustain myself. So in many ways, um, starting a law firm was very much a necessity as opposed to a, to a dream. But, but back to your point about marketing, one of the interesting things, um, I mean, marketing, you know, obviously studying marketing at university, we understand it's all about push and pull strategies and, and brand recognition and, uh, and knowing who your market is and knowing how to communicate with your market. Um, starting your own law firm is quite challenging because you don't know any of that, right? You don't know who your market is. You don't know where they are. You don't know how to communicate to them. Um, and coming from my CEO role in the other law firm, um, which was a very old firm, um, the, the marketing really was quite a challenging scenario for a number of reasons. 
Well, you don't see much law firms doing any sort of marketing. Oh, well, a lot of it's by stealth, but uh, but there actually is a lot out there. And I think now that you've said that, you're probably going to see it. You'll start seeing it <laughs> yeah. everywhere. Right? Yeah, probably will. You start seeing it everywhere. So, for example, I ran a Google AdWords campaign for a law firm where we're in Melbourne, and the cost per click to try and capture that footprint around the Melbourne CBD was significantly high. Mm. And a lot of the calls, there was a lot of inbound calls that came from it, but our cost per click was up six, seven dollars a click, I think, at some stages. It was extraordinarily high. Yep. And you get a lot of people just ringing around for, you know, time wasters. They want free advice. They're ringing around for a price. You know, you're, you're paying six bucks to give free advice. And, and, you know, occasionally two or three of them a month might turn into an actual matter. And, and then you're constantly faced with this dilemma of factoring in uh, the cost you're paying for them to, to, uh, to reach your business and then the return you're getting on the investment overall. Mm-hmm. And I, I drew a conclusion very early on, particularly after about a six-month period, that I probably could have taken the money I'd spent on AdWords, taken it outside, put it in the middle of the road, set it on fire, and I probably would have had um, just about the same outcome. And I realised very quickly looking at it after the sort of the dust had settled and the investment was done and the return just wasn't there, that in the particular Melbourne CBD, you know, that cost per click, you're absolutely competing for that advertising space. And I looked on Google, it has this tool that tells you how many people are in the area, 250 law firms within a five-kilometre radius from me, right? Yeah. I walked away from that very, very concerned about, you know, how, how do you actually present yourself online and market yourself online when there's that much competition buying for that real estate. And so I, I, I was very much burnt by AdWords and I started looking at very traditional ways of marketing, you know, referral people, um, you know, just cold calling sometimes, getting myself to those kind of events where I could be connected with people who have particularly got a legal issue, everything but chasing ambulances down and hanging around outside a court. But it was it was it was on the agenda, right? You know, if I you had a one place, to get, yeah. I was gonna be down in the emergency department. <laughs> Are you okay? Did this happen in the workplace? Um so interestingly enough, I actually moved the office from Queen Street in the city down to Altona. Um and I found, and this is a great tip for all the punters out there, I found, um, you know, when I scheduled, uh, configured Google so I had my office down there, that even if you typed my business name in after I'd moved in, it wasn't coming up on the first page. And I thought this is a really, this is a real dilemma, you know, because um, no, it was the only lawyer in Altona pretty much and no one could find me. So I actually engaged a marketing company and I'll give a punt uh, a point out to them, Thrive Marketing, um, and said to them, because I knew this fact, I knew that Google AdWords pushes you up on the first page, right? Just the cost per click, because you're always there, just it automatically starts improving your search engine optimization. So I said, look, I'd like to run a really cheap and cheerful ad just in Altona just to push me up a bit for a month or so so people can find me. I had no confidence in Google AdWords at all, right? Mm-hmm. But I just needed to get up there. And no problem. So um, the good people at Thrive Marketing set it all up for me. And I think they, they turned it on at about 10 o'clock, right, in the morning. And by 11.30, um, 
I'd accumulated something like four and a half thousand dollars worth of matter. So in an hour and a half, it was just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just continued along that line, right? Because I just really was the only lawyer in Altona. And it was a sort so of local. Targeting a suburb. Yeah, just targeting a suburb. Um, and that was quite extraordinary. I mean, it's a huge learning experience because all of a sudden I wasn't out in the Melbourne CBD competing with the likes of Slater and Gordon and everyone else, Russell Kennedy, they're all there. I was just this the lone guy out in Altona. And we expanded that footprint. We sort of got Yarraville, um, Brooklyn, all the way through to Werribee, and, bang, that became my client base. Mm-hmm. And my business just absolutely went gangbusters. Um, and so much so, you know, that. You know, I've always been a firm believer as you grow your business in line with your revenue. You never, you know, I'm a real bootstrapper. Um, I've always been a bit of a startup guy. And, you know, being in the, in the legal fraternity, it's a very expensive business to have because insurance and stuff is quite costly. So I started just chipping up my marketing spend online. And uh, and then, you know, it, I really, really captured that area. And then I've gone and then just done it again. I started targeting Brighton all the way up to uh to Frankston. And so what I've sort of done is I've looked for those hotspots around Melbourne and the CBD where there's not so much competition for the real estate. I'm getting a, a lower cost per click and uh, and that's how I've been picking up all our customers. We, of course, aren't in Altona anymore. We're, we ended up with uh, an office in Altona, one in Brighton and one in the CBD, and now we're, we're all in uh, – well, we've still got Altona, but we're in St. Kilda right now. It's but, online marketing scares the shit out of people in professional services like me um, because there's so many stories that doesn't work like your original one. It doesn't work. But I guess if you do target an area and you become the only person there, it's almost like when you go to a local football club and everyone's talking about you because, well, you're the only financial planner there or you're the only mortgage broker there or the only lawyer that everyone knows. Uh, right. Nowadays with Google, if you're the first one that pops up and they keep seeing you, I guess you're going to establish a pretty good reputation. And then, of course, you have to deliver. That's right. You do have and to if deliver. You don't deliver. The wheels don't keep turning. Big no, thing. no, tell that's me, right. Tell me too. So, a few years in law now, you would have come across some pretty interesting um, cases. I could imagine. Is there anything that sort of sticks out in your mind as something that people might like to hear about? I know there's been a few cases where you've had to where you've had to rock up to co- go to court the next day, totally unprepared because someone's called you in, and you had a few wins. Um, Tell me something, just something, just something that might be a bit funny, if you're allowed. Well, I don't know if you're even allowed as a lawyer. Oh, I guess if I don't mention any names. I think the thing about, and this is the thing, this is the dilemma of any small business person is cash flow, right? I mean, it's great mm. to kind of have an established business and start actually deciding what it is you're going to do, right? You know, there's, there's so many customers in a particular sector that I'm just going to specialise in that and that's what I'm doing. And you've got an established brand and people know you for that and they keep coming to you. But obviously starting your own firm, you're not known for anything. Mm-hmm. And so you really do find yourself in this dilemma of saying, well, <laughs> you know, you've got to pay the bills, you've got to keep the lights on. Um, you, uh, particularly in the early stages, you'll jump at anything that earns a buck, you know. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've pretty much... Um, particularly in the in the first year of the practice, was was doing every possible matter that came in the door, which mm-hmm. for a lawyer isn't the greatest thing to do. And I'm grateful that um, and if anyone starting a law firm needs to make sure that they've got good supervision in place, and, and that's a, a competent person that uh, that you can go to. 
bounce ideas off. You know, we another thing we do in the law firm uh, is if we got matters where the the skill set is a little grey, we have barristers that we can reach out to, brief out to, and get advice on all that sort of stuff. So there are sort of checks and balances in place to kind of protect us. But yes, you're right. I mean, I had a call on a Sunday night asking if I could attend a matter. Uh, in the Supreme Court just to adjourn it off um, by another law firm. Uh, they told me it was just a directions hearing, which is a pretty informal hearing in the Supreme Court. Um, I showed up uh, in, the, in the morning. Um, now, one of the things about the Supreme Court, you depending on the type of matter that's going on there, you are meant to be the traditional robe. Uh, so you probably see everyone seen the, the black robe and... Uh, uh, so that, for those type matters, you're meant to be robed, uh, but a directions hearing, usually not. You know, you can just be, uh, wear a suit. Um, I've showed up for the uh, direction hearing, have no information about the case um, and uh, uh, have arrived just to find out that it actually wasn't a directions hearing. I was incorrectly briefed, um, that I should have been robed and I wasn't robed. And I've gone in and, well, I've got still got to do it, right? So I'm mean, just... Uh, my apologies to everyone. It's it's like showing up naked for something, you know. That's how <laughs> badly it's viewed at in the court. Um, and uh, uh, I, my adjournment was um, was declined, and I found myself in a full blown trial with nothing. So that that was probably the most uh, extreme scenario I've ever found myself. It's, it's every lawyer's worst nightmare. Find yourself in the Supreme Court, unrobed, leading a trial. With no information at all. Oh. Well, you know, we got through it. We got through it. Wouldn't <laughs> just leave him out into the ocean, just drop him off the edge of the boat and just make let him try and find his way back. Man, you know, it's like, when my um, when my application to adjourn was denied, <laughs> I, I had this moment where I was sitting at the bar table looking at the barrister next to me. I mean, it could have been a QC for I know and the and the, the judge up there, and I looked at the door. And I thought to myself, what would happen if I just run out of here right now? <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't have been the most silly thing to do. No, probably not. Um, failing, but, uh, oh, well. yes. you, don't, you don't wish it upon your worst enemy, but some people go through it, mate. You were just the unlucky one that did. So we've spoken about a few things. With, when it comes to investor types, I mean, we talk about well, investing into yourself and investing into your business. It's a pretty big hit to the pocket because if you kept working and making an income, I mean, everything just keeps turning over. You're able to keep doing your investments. But when you go out and start a new career or start a new practice, it takes a lot of money and, you got, as you said, you've got to focus on that cash flow. You've got to be resilient. You've got to try and find new ways to make money. Um, what do you think, coming from your perspective, obviously being through it and the firm getting to a really good point now, what are some personality traits you think people need to encompass when it comes to running a business but especially running a law firm as well? Well, I think the, the most important skill set for anyone starting any, particularly a services type business, and uh, probably the first year is the most fun you're ever going to have. Mm -hmm. um, after that, you know, you've got to deal with uh, staff and, and issues around growing and overheads and everything else. But you are the product, and that that that, that is the important thing. You are, you are the product, really, and you've got to, always remember in everything you do, you actually are the product. So how you conduct yourself and, and how you behave and how you deliver is, is all you've really got. Um, I think the, the most important skill 
and uh, whether it be a law firm or anything else, the most important skill to have is the ability to sell yourself because if you can't sell, you're absolutely dead in the water, particularly, you know, if you start, I mean, most people who start a law, law firm start as a sole practitioner and if they're unable to actually uh, sell their services to convince people and, and build that confidence with customers, then they're dead in the water. Um, and unless you've absolutely got so much cash that you can employ somebody to go out there and sell you on behalf of you, um, that's probably the most fundamental skill and important skill to have. It's absolutely important imperative that you can that you can actually sell your services. And you are the product. You are the product. That's right. You are, you are the product. Um, I think the other thing is, is, and it's like this in any professional service, you need to understand, know your client and understand their needs, um, manage their expectations and over-deliver where you can. Particularly, you know, like I, I, a lot of people's, a lot of people struggle with the quandary of over-delivery. You know, I'm coming from the IT space. Project managers who usually aren't customer-facing are always drilling down on individuals for over-delivering, right? How are you how are going to keep this profitable? You're over-delivering, you know, it's outside of scope. What are you doing? So, you know, the, the profit margins are going down on projects and the customer satisfaction is going up. And there is the tension, right? And I think, um, I think that's what a good law firm does is over-deliver well and does it in a way that exceeds the client's expectation. The profit is another scenario altogether, and it's very difficult in a law firm when you're selling time to manage over-delivery, like in any business. And over-delivery can sort of be construed as scope creep. It's, it's, usually it's not billable. Um, it's, it's, it's high value to the client, great customer satisfaction, but it pretty drives your profits down. And that's where actually sort of setting up your organisation um, uh, is important. Now, I, obviously, starting out my business in the beginning, I over-delivered as much as I could everywhere I could. I wanted my clients to walk away um, not just satisfied but absolutely ecstatic over the, the experience. And I talk about the experience, not the outcome, and that's really important. Um, as a lawyer, I cannot control the outcome. It's just too many variables. There's quite often other people making the decisions. I cannot control the outcome. I remember a, um, a mentor of mine a few years ago was talking to me. We were talking about setting up business, and he said to me, he asked me the question, Daniel, what is a brand, right? And I said, oh, what is a brand? Um, a brand, you know, it's a logo, you know, it's a logo, right? It's a logo, maybe it's a tagline. It's how people recognise you. Um, and your business, you know, it's something that embodies what you do. And he goes, no, no, that's not what a brand is. And I said, well, what is a brand then? And he goes, well, tell me about Coca-Cola. I said, well, Coca-Cola, it was a drink. It came from the coca bean. It was invented in 1890 or something. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think originally it had cocaine in it. That's where the, the Coke's life comes from. <laughs> he goes, no, 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 no. What is it about a Coke you like? And I said, well, I like it because it tastes like Coke. And he goes, well, what, does it ever taste like anything else? And I said, no, it always tastes like Coke. He goes, so the thing you like about Coke is every time you open up a can of Coke, it always tastes like Coke. And I said, yes, yes, it always tastes like Coke. I know what I'm going to get. That's why I love Coca-Cola. It always tastes the same. And he says to me, Daniel, that's what a brand is. The brand is the promise of an experience, right? And that's why people come back. 
And I think that's a really important thing to think about, you know, whether you're starting any type of business, but a particularly a service type business, and one where you can't always, like a law firm, control the outcome. The thing is, I can't guarantee to a client that you're going to win a case. I can't guarantee to a client that they're going to get the outcome they're after. I cannot do that. It just, it just doesn't happen. But what I can and what I do have a degree of control over is the experience they have all the way through from the moment they start engaging with my company till that moment that outcome is delivered, whatever outcome it is. And I hope that my clients walk away, whether they're dealing with me or any of the, any of the other lawyers in the, in the firm, that's how, okay, well, we didn't really get the, the outcome I was after, but I just had an extraordinary experience all the way through. They over-delivered to me. They communicated to me. I knew what was happening every step of the way. They managed my anxiety. We deal with some highly emotive people. We deal with some people that are in some really, really terrible and tragic situations sometimes, and it's really important that we're able to take them on that journey. And I hate saying the word journey, but it is a journey when you're in the, in the legal system and actually manage not just their expectations but some of their emotional needs as well. I mean, that's it's, it's, it's another element of what we do, but we're dealing with people who are quite often in a very highly emotive state and it's really important that we're actually there for them through the whole process. So when, when, you know, when, I, talk, when I talk about the business with my team, you know, over-delivering and making sure that we, only, we manage customer expectations, we understand their wants and needs and we communicate as much as we can to them at any time during the process is fundamentally probably the most important thing in our practice. Not all, not, you know, not all being about the, the hourly billable rate, being about the client experience, so important. And that's how you build a big and long-lasting firm. Yeah, it might, it might hit the profit margins a little bit, but um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ring echoes later on. It's going to do some great things for the business. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, outside of the, the dealing with the over-delivery is really an operational issue. So it's when you're selling time, it's very difficult to build scale into a business, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can when you're selling widgets. It's quite complex. Um, so traditionally, law firms have been able to do that by introducing efficiencies where they can. So quite often, uh, large law firms, uh, particularly with some of the older generation, and obviously IT has brought a lot of efficiency into the legal sector. But you know, back in the early days, dictating and secretaries typing letters was was one way to start pumping the work out, you know, and start getting that, you know, which usually would take a, uh, you know, an old lawyer, uh, you know, an hour and a half to pump out a letter at full whack. You know, someone's paying 800 bucks for a letter. That's just not efficient. That's not customer satisfaction. So the ability to dictate and have lower cost resources do some of this work um, kind of builds that over delivery, that meeting customer expectations, keeping the price down, you know, delivering on that tension. Um, and, you know, through various levels of of, uh, of staff, legal staff working in the business, and obviously the uh, the introduction of technology, um, we're further further looking at ways of not only establishing efficiency but also um, introducing economies of scale into the business where we can over deliver without negatively impacting our cash flow and profit, and sort of still achieving our customer satisfaction. And th- and that is the, the the biggest dilemma that we face every day. That That's some good advice. So for any people out there that are looking to start some sort of a service-based business, um, focus on the customer. Be resilient at the start. Yeah, you might have to take whatever you can at the start if you haven't got regular clients coming to you already. Um, but it just goes to show that it can really pay off if you stick to it, if you stick to your guns, if you do what you believe in and you really focus on the client. Daniel, that's it for today, mate. I think that's been 
found some fantastic insights into you, what you've done, the business. You're you're an amazing man. Um, thanks so much for coming on and having a chat to us. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. It's been great to be here. Thanks a lot. And for everyone out there, thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Investor Types podcast. What I want to remind you is that everything you heard in this podcast is general advice only. Please don't consider it as personal advice. If you do want to consider it as being personal advice, please go and speak to your licensed financial planner. Everything here is just informational purposes only. Take it as you will. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon.